Hello, everybody, and welcome back to our podcast, Critical Conversations. My name's Emily, and I'm joined here with Beatrice, and we are your hosts for today. A massive thanks to everyone who has been listening to the podcast so far. So we're going to welcome our first guest here today, and that's Dr. J.D. Coakley. And we're going to be talking today about ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. Um, so Dr. Coakley is an, a consultant intensivist in the ICU here at St. James's. So thank you very much for joining us today. Um, so you might start off, JD, then by explaining to us or giving us a brief outline of what happens from a pathophysiological point of view when someone develops ARDS. Thanks for having me along, Emily and Beatrice. Um, so with ARDS, it says it is acute respiratory distress syndrome or adult respiratory distress syndrome. Um, it's a syndrome, so it's not a disease in itself. Uh, so it can be caused by a lot of different um, pathologies. Um, there's always something underlying it, and then that leads to ARDS. Um, I kind of try and think of things simply. So if, when you look at an x-ray of somebody who has ARDS, they've got a lot of kind of fluid in their lungs, very similar to pulmonary edema. Um, so, and that's something you want to rule out as pulmonary edema from, from cardiogenic uh, failure, from left ventricular failure when you're looking at a patient and you, they're hypoxic and I think bilateral infiltrates and, and you're wondering, is this ARDS from something or is it, um, is it cardiogenic? Um, so the, as I said, it's a syndrome, um, the specific definitions of when you're diagnosing ARDS. So there's, um, this criteria called the Berlin criteria. Uh, they, it was a task force that was, that met in 2012 in Berlin and they decided on a definition for ARDS. So there was, one of them was, a, you obviously have to have respiratory failure. Um, it can't be cardiac in nature, so you usually have an echo or a BNP or something to rule that out. Uh, you have to have bilateral infiltrates on your x-ray um, and not something like a collapsed lobe of a lung or, or that. Um, it has to be kind of interstitial edema. And also you have to have an insult that has led to the ARDS. So that's usually uh, an insult within a week. Um, the, the ARDS has to happen within a week. It's usually in the first three days or so, but within a week of the insult. And you should be on a CPAP um, of over five. Um, there's a lot of changes in the lungs. So there's the early stage, which is kind of day one to 10. Um, and uh, and that's called the exudative phase and our stage. And that's essentially, just as I said, there's interstitial edema. Um, and then you get high line membrane formation. Um, and basically that is kind of a mixture of surfactant and dead cells and, um, and neutrophils um, and uh, all kind of lining the, the, the alveoli and kind of impeding gas exchange in, in the lung. Um, then, there's a, then there's a second phase, which is usually after a week of, of ARDS, um, and that's the fiber proliferative phase. And um, you get kind of proliferation of your alveolar cells. You get um, fibroblasts in the interstitium and uh, an early collagen formation. And then after that, then that kind of, it's kind of two to three weeks, and then some patients enter into a fibrotic stage. and. Um, and essentially you've got fibrosis or scarring of the lungs and um, the normal lung architecture is completely obliterated um, and you, you get kind of traction bronchiectasis and cyst formation and, um, and I have a patient in here at the moment who's just recovering from ARDS um, from uh, COVID and, uh, and she's got all these signs of this huge cyst formation and traction bronchiectasis and, and fibrosis. Um, so they're the kind of three stages of ARDS. 
Um, I mentioned that you always have to have an underlying um, cause for, the, for ARDS, so you should always look for why is this patient um, got ARDS, and it can either be something going on in the lung or outside the lung. So the most common cause of ARDS is, um, is sepsis, and, um, and that can be from anywhere in the body. And you often get kind of a patient, um, we often see maybe a surgical patient who's had some surgery and they've had an infected complication um, and they've got a low PO2 or they, they've got some respiratory failure and we consult and they're asking, do they have pneumonia? But often they have uh, ARDS as a result of a complication of surgery. But um, so sepsis would be the most common cause. Um, and then, so as I said, you've got things in the lung and outside the lung. So in the lung, maybe if somebody's aspirated or if they have a bacterial or viral infection in the lung or pulmonary contusion or inhalation injury, whether gas or liquid or, um, or near drownings. Um, and also kind of things like amniotic embolisms and things can lead to ARDS. Um, you've got the non kind of outside lung then, so sepsis we've mentioned, trauma, kind of multiple long bone fractures or burns or transfusion related lung injuries and pancreatitis would be a common one we'd see here. Um, or sometimes after thoracic surgery or cardiopulmonary bypass, you can get it um, from drugs and patients post stem cell transplant, which we also see here. Um, I mentioned there's a kind of few things, particularly heart failure yet to rule out. So you, you obviously it's not ARDS if it's heart failure leading to pulmonary edema. Um, and, uh, and then you've got kind of diabetes alveolar hemorrhage and PJP, which can look very much like them, um, and lymphocytes carcinomatosis, but um, they're kind of things to, to look out for. Um, we can talk a bit, if you like, about why the PO2 drops in these patients. Um, uh, so in your normal lung, you have, um, you have a, an interstitial space between the alveolar epithelium and the, um, and the capillary endothelium, and gas exchange happens across that. Usually, there's a, usually the, the alveoli are very dry, there's a bit of surfactant in there, but there's, they're very dry areas. And then you have um, the interstitial space is often kept very dry, um, usually by your lymphatics. They kind of um, they, they drain away a lot of fluid from, from the interstitial spaces. Um, and then you've got the capillary membrane and um, the alveoli, uh, alveolar epithelium is very tight. Uh, kind of the junctions are really tight, so there's very little leakage out there. And then in your blood, you have a lot of protein and things which are kind of trying to um, kind of be using oncotic pressure to absorb fluid out of the interstitium and into the, into the blood capillaries. So that keeps that kind of area very dry um, and without fluid. So when you have... Um, when you have an injury um, to a, a place in the, in the lung, um, you can you can get these pro-inflammatory cytokines. So you've got kind of TNF and interleukins 1, 6 and 8. Um, they kind of attract neutrophils to the area of injury. And then uh, you get this activation um, of these neutrophils and they release toxic mediators. And then they damage uh, your capillary endothelium and your alveolar epithelium. Then you get fluid leakage. In and out, and, that, and that's how you get to this kind of exudative phase and this fluid leaking into the interstitium. And then when you've got capillary membrane breakdown, you've protein um, and blood and things leaking into the epithelium, or it's only in the the um, the space and uh, the interstitial space. And um, and that's uh, and that that interstitial space gets a bit waterlogged, um, and then and then fluid goes out into the uh, alveoli as well because of the damaged alveolar epithelium. Um, and then you've got uh, these neutrophils then and blood 
for these species going into the alveoli, which are usually dry, and you get surfactant breakdown, and, and this, you stop producing surfactant, and then that's kind of why you get this wet picture, and then that's why you start producing these hyaline membranes, which is the um, kind of the, the surfactants, the, the cell content, like the cell breakdown, and, um, and, and the neutrophils and that. So, so that's kind of the view of it. So easiest way of looking at it is very leaky because of inflammation going on in the lungs um, and the inflammation is caused either somewhere outside the lungs or inside the lungs um, and you have to try and treat the underlying cause and support the ARDS until the underlying problem is treated. So you mentioned about this patient that is at the fibrotic stage of ARDS. Mm. So how do you treat the patients at this stage? What do you do to kind of like make them better? Yeah, yeah. you just have to. Um, so when you're at a stage of um, of, of fibrosis, your your lungs are extremely stiff and um, and you've got reduced kind of gas exchange and. Um, and it's very difficult to, to ventilate patients um, who have very stiff lungs and their compliance drops. Um, and you have to, uh, when you're trying to inflate a, a, a stiff lung, it's, it's like when you have a, a balloon and you're trying to inflate at the very start, it's, it's really difficult. And, um, and usually with a lung, you kind of you want it open and, and ventilate easily, but, but you just can't open it up and it's, it's just stiff and stuck. Um, and then you get these kind of, if they're really in the, that fibrotic stage and they've got these cysts and, and that the, you know, and you're using higher pressures to drive air in, you can cause pneumothoraces and things at that stage. So um, in the really difficult cases, and particularly over the last year or two, um, in, in COVID, particularly with these young patients who are in this very fibrotic phase, and, you know, if you're trying to ventilate them with very low tidal volumes, you, you'd be getting peak pressures up in the 40s. and. Um, and the so so you you really have to try and get them onto um, a spontaneous mode of ventilation. So it was you know, these patients that we managed to get through, we'd we try and reduce their sedation down as much as we can to get them kind of triggering the ventilator, and then try and get them to do most of the work, even if they're very tachypnic and uncomfortable looking. Um, and uh, just to try and and have that bit of negative pressure to reduce the overall positive pressure you're putting in there. We see. You don't want to be compounding the the damage with high peak pressures and high pressure and um, and uh, and high driving pressures because um, the if you're if you're using those high driving pressures you're going to damage the lungs more and cause more fibrosis and it's, um, you'd be in a bit of a vicious cycle so they're very difficult to manage um, it's usually weeks into the ventilation course and um, uh, and you just have to try and support them and, and hope that you get them through mm -hmm. and hope that the underlying cause is treated fully. Do you know how many of these patients will survive the fibrotic stage of marriage? Uh, yes and no. Um, so the mortality for ARDS in general has been looked at. They don't look at the they look at the severity, all right, but they don't look at um, kind of which ones are fibrotic and which ones aren't in, in the kind of research that they've done. Um, it kind of a, it used to say the hospital mortality, and that's hospital mortality, you know, not ICU mortality, was, was about 40% for patients um, who have ARDS. Um, and, the, and then if you're mild ARDS, your mortality is kind of, they say, used to say about 45%, moderate by 40%, severe about 30, or sorry, the other way, 35% 35, 35 mortality for mild 
40% for, for moderate and then 45% for severe AODS. Um, and I guess the severe ones would be more in the fibrotic stage, I'd imagine. Um, the uh, cause of death um, is, is often not actually respiratory failure. Um, usually the cause of death and the most common cause of death in ARDS is actually from the underlying disease itself and, and not the ARDS. Um, and then you do have some deaths due to respiratory failure, but that's quite uncommon. Um, and then often when you get through, when you get them through their ARDS and you treat them and you get them out of ICU, a lot of them die later on in during that hospital stay, either from kind of a hospital quite pneumonia or sepsis, and and they don't come back to ICU. And, and so, so most of the mortality is actually either very early from the cause or later after they've survived after they've gone through the whole ventilation course, but they just don't leave hospital. And what about lung protective ventilation? Oh yeah, um, so I was talking about uh, ventilating very uh, difficult kind of fibrotic lungs, but of course there's the lung protective ventilation, um, which is the kind of bread and butter of ventilating a patient with uh, ARDS. So um, there was an ARDSNET uh, trial back 22 years ago, I think, in the year 2000, and they compared kind of um, six mils per kilo tidal volume, the kind of, of the ideal body weight, versus 12 mils per kilo, and uh, which would have been quite high tidal volumes, but there was a reduced mortality in the six mils per kilo. So you'll always see us um, setting the ventilation um, on all these patients to be six mils per kilo, ideal body weight for the tidal volume. And then you want to um, control their CO2, usually aim for normal, but you can do um, a permissive hypercapnia where just to keep the peak pressures down and the, the pressures in the lungs down, you allow the CO2 to drift up, kind of as long as they're not getting too acidotic. Um, and then the other part of that uh, ventilation strategy is um, is the PEEP. So um, you keep kind of a high enough PEEP. There's in the ARSNET trial, they had um, a little table of how much PEEP compared to what your FiO2 was. Uh, in another trial and kind of a few years later in the alveoli, they, they looked at even higher PEEP than the ARSNET trial. Kind of, you know, if you had somebody on 50% oxygen, they were looking at PEEPs of 16 to 20 um, compared to usually around 10. and um, but there was no difference in, in outcome. So so we just keep the kind of the PEEP strategy that was in the ARDSNET trial and keep them a little bit on the drier side, although it doesn't really make too much of a difference. Um, and then we haven't really discussed neuromuscular blockade, which we do use when we need it. You ideally, ideally want to kind of stay away from it, but if you need it for lung ventilation, then you use it. Um, and there was uh, two trials kind of in the last 10 years. It's the Acurosis and the ROSE trials. One showed benefit, the other one showed no benefit using neuromuscular blockade for the first two days, but um, we just use it kind of when we need to, to tolerate ventilation. Um, and we often aim for peak pressure less than 30 um, or, or plateau pressure less than 30. Uh, and that's, that's really the, bre the bread and butter of ventilation in these patients. We have done a lot of proning during the pandemic, and mm. so I would like to ask you a little bit of like, how does proning work? Sure. So <laughs> proning um, is one of the very few treatments that we have that has been proven to improve um, mortality in in, in AODS. Um, so uh, the there was a trial done back in twenty thirteen called the Procedo trial, and uh, and that showed a mortality benefit. Um, and they would what they were prone for sixteen hours, um, and then two point for eight hours. 
Um, the reason it works, I guess, is a couple of different um, uh, theories. So, so one is if you ever look at a CT scan of patients with ARDS, they've often got a lot of the change in the lungs are are, are dependent, so they're um, so posteriorly in the lungs, and and because of gravity, when your blood flow is going through your lungs, it's generally go, most of it goes dependently. Um, um, things called the the zone west or the west zones, but um, but when you're lying flat, a lot of your blood goes kind of into the bases or into the back of the lungs um, because of gravity. And so, if you prone a patient, you're going to be getting the good side of the lung um, kind of on the gravity side, and uh, so the anterior part of your lung will, will be um, down to gravity, and so then you'll get more perfusion down through that lung, so you get in, improved kind of um, VQ, uh, ventilation perfusion matching. Um, because a lot of the problem with in ARDS is, is VQ mismatching, so when you've got uh, blood going through unaerated or unoxidated um, lung. so. That's one of the reasons um, some people talk about you get the pressure of the heart off the lungs. So um, usually if you're on your back, your, your, your heart is um, has a bit of pressure back um, and uh, just the lung behind it. And that when you go prone, um, you get just that weight of the heart off that part of the lung and that part of the lung might be able to expand and, and uh, there'd be a bit more, a bit better ventilation of that part of the lung. Um, so I think they're, they're kind of the main um, reasons it, it works um, and I think what it does in my mind is, is that it improves speaking this matching um, and that you actually start kind of ventilating different parts of the lungs so you're, you're not constantly putting the same strain on the same part of the lung all the time when you're supine so when you're prone you're actually ventilating different parts of the lungs and maybe um, there's more of a homogenous um, ventilation over a 24 hour period than if you were just ventilating one lung for 24 hours so that's the way I look at it. Um, yeah, so. uh, another other therapies that we use with these type of patients is uh, nitric oxide. Mm. The benefits of nitric oxide in the pediatric population are well proven, but with adults, uh, the research is not that. Yeah, and, and nitric yeah. oxide, you're right. Why this, do we use it in here? Why do we use it? So, um, you're right, in all the research in adults, there hasn't been any real proven benefit to it. Um, the you know it definitely improves again VQ matching. Um, so you're putting a vasodilator into a part of the lung that you're you're ventilating, and uh, that will improve blood flow to that part of the lung that you're ventilating, and so you you get more kind of oxygen and, and less um, less VQ, VQ mismatching, less um, shunting through lung that you're not ventilating. Um, so the theory about it is 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 there. Um, it definitely um, improves numbers. So when we put people, you know, we're having difficulty oxidating or even sometimes clearing CO2, um, and it's it's proven difficult. And you know, you're quite sure that they wouldn't survive without uh, nitric. And you start the nitric, and certainly you start getting more oxygen into their lungs. Um, you're right. If you look at all the all the kind of overall research, that it doesn't seem to be any definite benefit, but I'm pretty sure in my career so far I've seen patients who have uh, survived because of nitric and that if we hadn't started it, they would have, been, they would have gone, they would have probably died from hypoxia. Um, so yes, the big number is not a great kind of um, statistical 
significance with nitric, but I think at a smaller individual level, I think there are a few patients that probably do benefit from it. And maybe they got a problem with pulmonary hypertension as well, which, which you're, you're treating with nitric. But okay. Um, what about the oscillator? Because the research is also conflicting on that one. How does it help ventilate patients with ARDS? Yeah, so the oscillator isn't used very much anymore. I think we're one of the few centers that use it still. And um, we use it as a, as a rescue therapy. Um, so definitely there was, back in 2013, there was a lot of um, activity around oscillation in adults. Um, there were these two trials. There was one called Oscillate that, that year, which um, they, they looked at uh, high-frequency oscillation. And they started early, kind of within, I think it was within a week of, of patients or within a few days of patients being diagnosed with ARDS. And, um, and they actually showed an increased mortality in those patients. And uh, the OSCAR trial had a very similar kind of strategy in less than seven days. They didn't see an increased mortality, but they didn't see any improvement with, with nitric. Um, uh, so, or sorry, not with nitric, but with, with oscillation. So they, uh, they don't use that anymore. But I'm sure as you've seen here, um, again, there's definitely been a fair few patients who uh, and certainly have died from either hypercarbian acidosis or, or hypoxia, um, who we've managed to get through their their COVID illness with with oscillation and um, and and again, kind of I think as a rescue therapy, I think it probably does have a place, um, but that has to be yet to be proven um, with evidence. Um, but uh, you know, you've seen um, us using both nitric and oscillation together, and both don't have very strong um, evidence behind them, but but I, I'm pretty sure it has worked. Um, yeah. You've even seen, and I think a prone patient on on oscillation here, and yeah. um, and that patient managed to survive. So, so I think there is still a place for it. Um, we have transferred a few patients to the matter for the ECMO service. Uh, mm -hmm. At what point do you start thinking about referring them? Yeah. So, um, so ECMO is obviously um, a very fine resource. It's not a lot of it. You know, it's it's a it's a very advanced therapy and with with its own complications but um the we have referred patients for uh, for uh, for ECMO obviously but um the there are obviously a couple of criteria that we use ourselves um for for referral um i guess one is is that you want to get them early in their in their disease so Ideally, um, you want to refer within a week of onset of, of ARDS and if you're having difficulty oxidation, their PF ratio is less than 10 and, um, and they've got diffuse ARDS and, and their very score is high. And um, you've, um, so, so ECMO is uh, something we do refer to. So that's one, um, I guess they, they, they have to have a reasonable um, uh, quality of life ahead of them or, or, or background and the reasonable prognosis, I think. So if you have uh, somebody with a terminal disease, um, it's not something that you'd really consider. Um, and, uh, and, and essentially, we don't, we don't decide who, who goes and who does get accepted and doesn't. So I think any patients that we feel uh, would benefit from it, we refer. Um, but ideally, you want to get them early. And, and during, there was a, a little bit of a difference during um, which kind of developed over the, the course of the last two years with COVID, um, used to be that you'd have to be ventilated and, you know, within a week of ventilation, but then I know some centres in the UK started accounting the non-invasive ventilation period as part of a ventilation okay. 
time before being accepted for for ECMO. But um, but so some places in the UK started saying that they would include the NIV times so if you're on NIV for you know two weeks and then ventilate for five days. They'd almost say that's almost nineteen days, and maybe it's too late um, to end because you don't want to damage lungs further with ventilation. And if you're using high peak pressures because of poor compliance and high high FO2s, um, you're going to damage lungs further. And it's better to get them early with, with ECMO when they're needed. So JD, you've talked a bit about mortality there. Um, I'm wondering, can you explain um, a little bit more about patient outcomes and morbidity in relation to these patients that have ARDS? Um, sure. So that's a very good point and something we don't think about um, a lot, in particular when we're talking to families and patients. And, and it's uh, something that I guess we think more about when we come to end of life, but it's, it's probably more important when you when you're talking to somebody about who's going to survive this and, and what to expect um uh the they've done a lot of studies well not a lot but a couple of studies on on different outcomes um and they kind of break them down into into various areas so there's it's kind of your cognitive outcomes and um and i, I guess the some of that some is related to your hypoxia that you've been through um probably a bit of uh, neurological injury and um, but also the disease that's sort of underlying the whole process as well and um, and, and that would affect your cognitive um, function and, and certainly they've shown quite a good bit of impaired cognitive function um, after somebody survived ARDS so uh, usually at about six months um, they say about 30 percent of people have impaired cognitive function but then if you actually look further 12 months um it seems to be a little bit higher kind of 40 to 50 percent have a, a bit of impaired cognitive function um so it's certainly um safe to say that a lot a lot of patients won't be the same after they've been through a period of, of, of profound hypoxia um and, and critical illness um then there's your psychiatric outcomes so uh so Obviously, we all my patients in ICU who are awake and very anxious, and um, and there's patients who um, who develop depression afterwards. So about a third of patients will, will develop um, depression after after getting home from from ICU or from a critical illness like this. Um, up to kind of half of people will have ongoing anxiety problems, and then um, post traumatic stress disorder that we, we all know about, um, but. Kind of a, a lot of a lot of these patients kind of between 20 to 40 percent depending on what you read will have post-traumatic stress disorder after being through a long icu stage with severe aods um and then so that's kind of psychiatric and cognitive but then there's the physical aspect of it as well um so most people have some weakness you know profound weakness afterwards but the recovery is, is very long um and they they say it about um uh, at about two years, 66% of patients have ongoing physical um, problems and weakness. Uh, the, they, they look at, at these things, six minute walk tests, so they walk the patient for six minutes, they see how far they can go. Um, so at three months, if you've been through kind of moderate ARDS, um, at three months you can walk about 300 meters in six minutes, which is not very far. Um, and about 12 months, so a year after, you can walk about 410 meters. So you're very 
um, impaired in your, in your function afterwards. This, this isn't every patient now, but and I think as a ballpark, you say about 50% of patients will have trouble getting up a, a, stair, a, a flight of stairs, you know, six months to a year later. Um, and uh, so certainly physical problems um, persist. And uh, and if you look at average, if you look at the six minute water tests, um, kind of look at kind of all patients, about 66% of people, uh, um, or patients have about 66% of their predicted um, walking distance at one year, about 67% there at three years, and about 76% of five years, so even five years later, um, your physical uh, activity is still quite impaired. Um, and then they obviously can look at lung function as well. Um, so DLCO is something that looks at your gas exchange and um, and when you're leaving hospital, um, about you know, most people will be reduced um, uh, will have reduced DLCO, about 80% of them will have it. Um, but following up over five years, the DLCO seems to mostly normalize by about five years. Um, but patients develop these restrictive or obstructive kind of patterns on their on their pulmonary function tests. Um, and when you look at things like supplementary oxygen, um, very few patients need supplementary oxygen after they, they survive, but a few do. Um, and then I guess the last one, which is very important, is work. Um, so if you uh, come in and you've got moderate to severe ARDS, um, only 50% of those patients will be back working within a year, and about 55% two years, 70% five years. So, so you're talking about almost a third of patients not working, um, not getting back to work five years later, which is uh, a, big a huge yeah. amount. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, there some just don't work again. Some go become students again, or some work from home and things like that. But mm -hmm. actually, returning to work is only about seventy percent five years later. So okay. it's a significant outcome. Well, thank you so much for that, Nidhi. That was very very interesting. And thanks so much for your time. So hopefully, we'll have you back soon for another topic uh, related to critical care. And thanks for everyone who was listening. And uh, if there is any topic that you would like us to cover, you can send us an email to icueducationteam at sanjames.ie. Thanks for having me.